And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, Google Play, Podbeam, iTunes, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show, Spotify. <clears throat> Just go look for it. You'll find it. We appreciate you listening. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today, as always. I want to start with, there's a piece written by Kevin DeYoung. And if you're not familiar with Kevin DeYoung, he's an amazing uh, pastor uh, from up in the, uh, I think it's around Minnesota, north, up north, uh, and, and doing great stuff up there. But he wrote a piece uh, in conjunction and concerning what happened in Nashville on March 27th. Obviously, we talked about that here last week, but um, but he talks about how the Christian is kind of to navigate this. And when, when suffering occurs, when things happen, what does that look like? Uh, and so we're going to start there. We're then going to look at some things that are happening around the country con- concerning abortion. Uh, also look at some things maybe that, that are uh, having to do with marriage, uh, children, parenting, We'll cover as much as we can cover, and anything that we don't get to, we'll cover in, in another show. But let's start with this piece by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, you can find it over at uh, World News, uh, which is a, a great site, and we'll, of course, put it in the show notes. Uh, but he, he titled it, Sorrows Untold and Hearts Torn Asunder, The Fight of Faith in This Sad World. Everyone suffers. We get that. Live long enough, and you'll say goodbye to a dream. You'll lose a friendship. You'll bury a loved one. Suffering hurts a lot. That's why it's called suffering. We don't like it. We often hate it. And yet, we can almost accept that pain is a part of the ordinary travels or travails of life. Until there seems nothing ordinary about it. There's suffering, and then there's Job-like catastrophe and loss. That's what our dear brothers and sisters, some of them no doubt personally, known to those reading these words, are facing at Covenant Presbyterian Church and at the Covenant School in Nashville. Uh, I won't retell the tragedy or recount the horror of this past Monday morning. You know what happened, and for everyone in that community, they will never forget. What lies ahead for the church, the school, the kids, the parents, the grandparents, the siblings, the pastor, the staff, the family, the friends, is a long road that no one, and I mean no one, wants to travel. That road will mean grief, pain, anger, confusion, and sorrows untold. As Christians, we also dare to believe that there will be, in time, at times, unspeakable comfort, unexplained hope, and the blessing of the light of God's countenance, and a divine and supernatural light that can only be seen from the darkness of the deepest well. The Christian life is a fight of faith, especially in the face of calamity and evil, It takes spirit-given courage and fortitude to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, as referenced in 1 Timothy 6, 12. We talk so much about faith that we can underestimate just how otherworldly it truly is to be a Christian. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11, 1. That's the closest thing to a definition of faith we get in the Bible, and it's a definition we'd prefer not to rely on. I like to be assured of things I have, not things I hope for. I like to be convinced of things I see, not things I don't see. Every Christian has said this sentence before, and, will, and millions will say it again this Sunday. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. If you've been in the church for years, the first sentence of the Apostles' Creed just rolls off your tongue. We can literally recite it in our sleep, which is good because lying awake in terror of the night is when we may need this truth the most. 
God is Almighty Father. That's not just something, that's everything. For tenderness of expression, there is no explanation of the creed's first line as sweet and comforting as that which comes from the catechism. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty? All of this, I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever, whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. Is that really true? Can we really count on such a promise? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. He is able to do this because he is Almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Hard to believe after six lives were shot down in an act of diabolical uh, violence. Also, yes, that's why it's called the fight of faith. In times like this, we need the whole Bible with all the depth of Christ's sympathy and all the height of God's providential and loving care. We need to know that God never leaves us nor forsakes us. We need to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to know that the story doesn't end with Joseph in prison or Jonah in the well or Jesus in the tomb. We need to know that every, that after every cruciform Monday morning, that Sunday's coming. I often think of ending in Exodus 2. After God's people cried out for deliverance, but years before the deliverance came, we are told four things. God heard their groaning, God remembered his covenant, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Sometimes with all that we'd like to know, all we know is that he knows. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble, Psalm 46.10. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief, Mark 9.24. So after what happened on March 27th, many of us, dealt with sadness, with anger, with frustration, with questions. Why would this happen? Why do, good thing, why do bad things happen to good people? Why did those little lives have to be murdered? Why did those adults have to lose their life? Why did spouses have to lay down that night without their husband, without their wife? Why did families have to go home and tuck their kids in bed and one bed was empty? All of these questions bring about a feeling of anger, of sadness, of frustration, maybe for some of us a, a sense of or, or a lack of hope. But as Kevin DeYoung said, we, we trust in those moments in the God of the universe. And I said this last week that that in this moment, our, our hope is not going to be found in a piece of legislation. Our hope is not going to be found in some court decision or some statement by an elected official. No, our hope is going to be found in the God that brings a, a, a peace and comfort to us. Our hope is going to be found in Jesus who walked the life on earth who lived perfectly, who faced temptation, who, who mourned, who wept as we weep for loved ones. And so there, there are some that will say, you know, enough with the prayers, enough with the thoughts. And I would just say that's bad theology. In these darkest of moments, in these times that seem like they're the toughest, if, if you're not depending on something greater than yourself. If you're not depending on a God that is sovereign 
then I don't know how you get through it. Because oftentimes we'll say things like, uh, and, and look, I, I follow and listen to a lot of folks that are kind of motivational speakers, and they'll say things like, you got to control what you can control, and those are things I say to my kids. You, gotta, you can control what you can control. you got to fight through the pain. you got to suffer sometimes, lean into the struggle. All those things may be true, but there is going to come a time, a struggle, that you're not going to be able to overcome. There is going to become a dark moment that you, in your own power, own will, will not be able to overcome. So in that moment, what are we to do? And oftentimes we quote Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But what that scripture is saying is, look, there's going to be very, very difficult times. And outside of Christ and his strength, you won't get through it. Or you'll hear people say things like, well, God will never put more on you than you can handle. No, the reality is that's the whole point. Because once we hit the end of the road, once we hit that wall, that that thing that we can't do on our own, what God is saying in that moment is exactly you can't do this on your own, but I can handle it. And so when we reach that end moment, when I think about the families that are burying their little babies this past week, you don't think they hit the, the wall? You don't think they hit the, the end of their rope? I can't do this on my own. I can't walk this road on my own. In my own strength, how am I possibly able to watch that casket be shut on my little baby? See, we're not meant to walk it on our own. We're meant to walk it with the church, with fellow believers, brothers and sisters that are going to come around us and love on us and pray for us. As I said last week, that Scripture says that that a day is coming where every tear will be wiped, every pain will be gone. But until that moment, we are to rally around our brothers and sisters and wipe their tears away. We are to rejoice with them when they rejoice. We are to weep with them when they weep. We are to pray for them, intercede for them. Sometimes we are to just sit in silence with them because we don't have the answer. And so we trust in these difficult moments. And look, all last week, I mean, I, there was so much anger in me. Much of it righteous anger. Much of it pointed in the right direction. But some of it not. Some of it sinful anger. As I watched elected officials say and do things that were uh, idiotic. As I watched and uh, witnessed elected officials, in, in some cases, all but spit in the face of the families that lost loved ones. As I watched elected officials immediately run to their political corners and, and politicize what happened in Nashville. Look, this is what we do as a society now. As I watch elected officials and celebrities and influencers celebrate and do things that are... Uh, I don't even know how to put it, that are demonic, that are polluting the minds of our children and polluting the minds 
of humans that are anti-gospel, that are anti-God. And they're not just accepting it. They're not just wanting you and me to tolerate it. They are saying, if you do not participate in it, you are a bigot and you need to be canceled. You need to lose your job, your, finance, your, your, your finances, you need to lose everything because you refuse to worship the golden calf. And folks, I'm just going to say that, that we need to be prepared because as I said last week, we are not just on a slippery slope. We have fallen off the cliff and the accelerator is pushed to the floor. And we are propping up idols in our society and golden calves in our society. And if you don't participate, you're going to be maligned. So, so you know, in the past... It, it seemed to be the norm that the vast majority of folks had a connection to the church. That's becoming a thing of the past. And so as we watch how these things unfold, what are we prepared to do? Are we going to grow closer to our God? Are we going to dig our heels in and, and do more arguing on social media? Are we going to live with bitterness and anger? Or are we going to trust that God has got this? And that requires something of us. It doesn't mean that you just sit back and, and trust and do nothing. No, we, we do stuff. We get involved. We speak out. We, we call for elected officials to do the right things. But oftentimes what happens is we, we do those things and we become uh, activists and we neglect what's happening at our home. We neglect what's happening in our community. So my challenge to you would be, be vocal, be active, be engaged, celebrate the truths of God, but do not neglect your home. Because as, as Satan is, is spewing the nonsense that is spewing in our secular culture, are you protecting your kids from that? Yeah, that means that, that your family may look different than the family down the road. That may mean that your kid doesn't have electronic devices while all the other kids do. That may mean that your kids don't watch certain things. But are we seeking to throw them to the wolves or are we seeking... To guide and steward the gifts that we have that are our children. I can't answer that for you. We'll be back. You know, God walked out in the cool of the day, by his name. So as we continue the conversation, you look, periodically I'll have these. Uh, we're going to obviously discuss abortion. We're going to talk about the life issue when it comes legislatively, when it comes to our our position from a gospel perspective, why we are pro-life, all of those things. But we also want to talk about things that have value. And, and one of those things is marriage. Why is marriage important? Why is there an ideal? Well, if we are serving in the pregnancy center context or serving through the church and we're, we're working with 
moms facing unplanned pregnancies and dads facing unplanned pregnancies, we want to provide a template. We want to provide a framework for them on what marriage could be, what marriage is supposed to be in the ideal scenario. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that, that some of them won't be single moms. It doesn't mean that some of them won't be single dads. We certainly know that is the case in, in, in some instances. But we do want to provide a template and a framework because marriage matters. And the reality is just because you've been married for a long time doesn't mean the work is over. I was just having a conversation with somebody over the weekend about a marriage, a long marriage, that it appears is coming to an end. Why? Because they didn't work on the things that mattered. Because communication fell and broke down. And now they're reaching a place where they don't know what the next step is. They don't know what they are to do. So to think as if, well, we made it 20 years, we're good, that, that's not the case. It takes work. It takes daily work, daily effort. And, and we know this even when it comes to... Uh, and that's what this piece I'm about to reference with the Wall Street Journal is talking about is even finances. And we know, we know that in the beginning, especially in an early marriage, in the early years of a marriage, finances can wreck it, right? We know that. We know that to be true. Oh, we're, we're fighting, we're, we're, we're dealing with financial issues, and, and so therefore we are fighting with each other. But what this new study looks at is saying that not just those with a lack of finances, but if they come into a large sum of finances, that also can wreck a marriage. Why? Because we're going to find out that there wasn't a stability there in the first place. So the title of this article is Money Can Break a Marriage, Even Getting More of It. Many couples are finding that a financial windfall can rock their relationship just as much as any hardship. Parental advice, folk wisdom, and academic research have devoted years of work and effort to understand what makes one relationship last and others break up. Not surprisingly, big changes in finances often shake the foundations of a relationship. But it isn't just the loss of money that provides a test. Both gaining and losing money upends partners' understanding of shared values, beliefs, or assigned roles within the relationship. When couples cannot adjust to their new financial standing and fail to communicate their concerns or desires, the marriage may be in trouble, said researchers and relationship counselors. Competing visions for how to use windfall can be harmful said Marina Elderman, a marriage and family therapist in Westlake Village, California. One couple she worked with recently came into a windfall from the husband's splashy new job. But working together to decide how the money would shape their future as a household revealed enormous gaps in their communication. All the joy and excitement got wiped out, Ms. Elderman said. They were so focused on what the windfall will buy from a materialistic standpoint and not focusing on the accomplishment that really rocked their marriage. Behavioral economic, uh, economists have found that the prospect of losing money has a stronger emotional effect than gaining a similar amount. But when it comes to marriages, new research suggests big financial swings in either direction can shake couples much the same way. Both scenarios can expose fault lines in the marriage that had previously been withstood or ignored, said David uh, Cassarini, an economics professor at New York University. Researchers tracked lottery winners in Sweden for 10 years after they hit the jackpot. In a working paper published in March, their team found something surprising. Who held the winning ticket significantly changed what happened to the marriage. In the long run, male winners saw reduced divorce and higher fertility leading to stable marriages and family formation. 
So if the dude won the lottery, what the study found was if men win the lottery, their risk of divorce decreased, and they were actually higher for they had higher fertility rates, leading to stable marriages and family formation. But listen to this: when a woman held the winning ticket, the windfall of around a hundred thousand dollars and five hundred thousand dollars increased the likelihood of divorce, especially for low-income women and those who earn far less than their husbands. Lower-income households are more impacted by changes in economic circumstances, not just positive windfalls, but also when something bad happens. It is more disruptive for the marriage. Adam Cole, a financial therapist based in Fort Lauderdale, said he worked with client couples who've experienced both setbacks and windfalls. And in both, both cases, the accompanying income shock often brings around a change in power dynamics regardless of where the couple lands on the income spectrum. It is incredible how I see the same patterns with couples who make 100000 or a million dollars a year if the communication is lacking. In some partnerships, Mr. Cole said, one partner takes on the lion's share of the financial duties, acting as the household chief financial officer. These couples are more vulnerable to conflict if the financial status quo then changes because they don't share an understanding of their cash flow and net worth. Look, I could go on and on, but, but again, even in these moments, what it's talking about is communication is key. Are we communicating in our marriages? And if we're not communicating in our marriages, how are we going to assist a secular culture that devalues marriage at every chance they get? You see, this article, this study, is a secular article and a secular study. It is not saying they would not argue that marriage is the ideal, yet... They're showing that when communication breaks down, marriages break down. They're showing that, that even when it can't, comes to finances, if you are losing money or if you gain the same amount of money, both of those things could happen and ruin your marriage. And sometimes we say things like, well, man, my marriage and all of this would be so much better if I won the lottery. My marriage and all this would be so much better if I got that promotion. Everything would be so much better if... And we just keep filling in the ifs over and over and over and over again. But the reality is, if you're not communicating, we even saw that depending on who won the lottery. See, in in my viewpoint, if we don't play the lottery, but if my wife were to get a lottery ticket and win, we are one. We are a married couple. Everything of ours is together. Our finances are together. So we would have won the lottery. If I got a lottery ticket and won, it wouldn't be, well, that I won, you know, and I'll decide what I do with it. No, we won. That is our money. If we sell our house and we make money from the sale of our house, that is our money. You see, but what often happens in, in marriage is there is a competitiveness. Well, who makes more? You make more than I do, and so you get to make all the decisions. Or I make more than you do, so I get to make all the decisions. And instead of seeing the marriage as a one unit, unified force, doing things together, investing together, communicating together, sharing our finances, sharing everything, we see it as a, a competition, well, why do we do that? Some of us see it as a competition in our own household. Some of us see it as a competition for those of our uh, people in our neighborhood. Some of us see it as a competition of people we went to high school with. Some of us, it's a competition of people that we go to church with. Or it's a competition of those that we are friends with on Facebook because look at all the trips they get to go on and I don't get to do that. 
Look how happy their kids are. Why aren't our kids happy? Look how happy their marriage is. Why isn't our marriage that good? My grandmama and granddaddy have been married for 71 years. They've been together since they were 14 years old. Got married when they were 18. There's been ups and downs. They're, they're, they've lost children. Their children have made terrible decisions in their life. They've had good times of finances. They've had bad times of finances. Many years my grandmama and granddaddy both worked. Some years my grandmama never worked. But they just kept putting in the work. Putting in the work. Communicating. We're going to make this work. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through that. So oftentimes, younger people coming up, and we talked about this on the show in the past, younger people coming up don't want to get married because all the marriages around them are in shambles, and they don't want that. They don't want a roommate. And so what are we showing? How are we illustrating to young people coming up, our own kids, our communities, at the church? What is the church saying to a secular society about marriage? Are we setting the bar high or are we just getting along, going along and getting along? And the studies show no difference in the church and outside the church. We got to put in the work. We'll be back. So as we continue the conversation, I now want to shift gears to the state of Colorado. You know, periodically we're going to look at what's happening around the country uh, on the issue of abortion. And Colorado has gone out of their way to be extreme uh, and, and to, I mean, really put all their chips on the table when it comes to the abortion agenda. It is, you know, people will call me extreme for my position on life. Because I'm 100% pro-life and, and because I believe that, that life is, uh, every human life it bears the image of God, that requires something of me and we should protect life in the womb. Uh, they, they would call me extreme for erring on the side of life. They would call me extreme for, for seeing that, that uh, babies are in, fact, are in fact in the womb. They would call me extreme for saying that life begins at conception. They would call me extreme for supporting the Human Life Protection Act in Tennessee. They would call me extreme for requ- wanting to require ultrasounds before women can get abortions. They would call me extreme for saying we need to defund the abortion industry uh, with tax dollars and all those things. Like They would call me extreme for that. But ultimately, my position is, is protecting life. Ultimately, my position means that more lives will be given an opportunity. And they call me extreme. But, but I'm about to show you what extremism is. And this is what Colorado is doing. A trio of bills seeking to bolster abortion rights in Colorado passed their last vote in the House on Saturday, now only needing the governor's signature to become law. If enacted, Senate Bill 188 would protect abortion patients and providers in Colorado from penalties from other states. Senate Bill 189 would expand health insurance coverage for abortion. Think about that. Health insurance. Health insurance is designed to what? Prevent death. Prevent sickness. We use health insurance 
when we are sick and want to get better. And they're saying we need to use health insurance to literally take the life of a human. Lastly, Senate Bill 190 would prohibit deceptive advertising and the use of abortion, quote, reversal pills in pregnancy centers. Now, let me explain something to you. Abortion pill reversal is something that has been around for a few years now. And it's what that is, is, is giving progesterone to a woman. Now, if you are familiar with hormones, a woman produces progesterone. Progesterone is what helps a healthy pregnancy go along. My wife, we had a miscarriage. After that miscarriage, when she was pregnant, they gave her progesterone to help the pregnancy along. So what, what the abortion pill reversal is, is a woman takes the first abortion pill. Let's say a woman has a, has a moment where she doesn't want her baby. She gets the abortion pills. There's two abortion pills, the first being mifepristone. She takes that first pill, mifepristone, that first pill is designed to starve the baby of progesterone. It's designed to create a hostile environment where that baby will not survive. And then you take the second pill and it causes labor so you can uh, remove the baby from the womb. Now, what we have found in some studies, it has showed that you can, if, if you act quick enough, after the first pill, mifepristone, is taken, you can get on progesterone at a high dosage for a time period. And we have seen in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, that that abortion is then reversed. And baby actually survives and is healthy. So there is a path to reversing the abortion pill, the, abor- the abortion after the woman takes the first pill. Now, obviously, the abortion industry, they don't like this. They're not going to do studies to see if this is a good thing or not. Progesterone has been given off-label and given for a number of reasons for years and years and years and years. It is a safe drug. But they're trying to paint a picture that it's dangerous to women. When in reality, the danger, the danger is mifepristone. Why? Because it's designed to end the life. As we talked about on this show, abortion, a successful abortion means that a heartbeat is no longer. It means that a life is no longer. A botched abortion means that somehow, some way, that baby survived the abortion. And so there are other court cases that we'll talk about in the coming weeks where, the F, where, where they're trying to get the FDA to pull the abortion pills off the shelf, and we hope that we find some success there. But back to Colorado. After three days of debate, the bills passed the House mostly along party lines. Senate Bill 188 passed in a vote of 42 to 18 with five lawmakers absent, all Republicans in opposition and all Democrats in support. The votes were similar for SB 189 and SB 190, but Democratic Representative Bob Marshall of Highland Ranch joined his Republican colleagues in voting no. Marshall represents a district that has never before elected a Democrat and called himself personally pro-life on the campaign trail last year. Last week, the Senate approved the bills in similar votes, 22 to 13, for all three bills, with all Republicans voting no and all Democrats voting yes, except for Senator Kevin 
Parola, who switched parties last year. SB 190 will be sent straight to Governor uh, Polis's desk for final consideration. SB 188 and SB 189 will go back to the Senate to approve changes made by the House and then to Polis. If signed by the governor, all three bills would take effect immediately. The bills are the first legislative action Colorado lawmakers have taken up on the subject since the Supreme Court overturned uh, abortion protections in the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization ruling last year. Two months before the ruling, state lawmakers enshrined abortion as a fundamental right with the Reproductive Health Equality Act. For more information about each bill and the respective House debates, you can look further online. But, but here's the reality. Colorado is going out of their way to prop up abortion. It is the golden calf. It is the idol. They're going out of their way to attack pregnancy centers. I have friends that are leading pregnancy centers in Colorado that are doing amazing work, that are seeing life saved, that are, that are serving women and men, that are providing much-needed care at no cost to women and men, that are providing material assistance and parenting education to women and men, that are saving taxpayer dollars. And it, it angers me to know that these folks that, that could literally do anything with their life have given their life to serving the vulnerable in their community. And this is how elected officials think them. This is what the legislature in Colorado believes is the answer, is more abortion. They want their state to be known for all the abortions they can provide. They want to spat off nonsense, claiming that progesterone is dangerous when it's not. They want to go out of their way to say that pregnancy centers are being deceiving when they're not. They want to go out of their way to prop up the abortion industry that receives billions of dollars each year that's receiving tax dollars, that are being protected by legislatures. They want to tell young women and young men in the state of Colorado that, that you can abort your baby all the way up to nine months. It'll be okay. You see, that's deceptive. We know for a fact that abortion uh, folks are, are being deceptive and they're providing the abortion pills long after they're supposed to be providing them. We know for a fact that they're telling patients that when you, if, you, if you have a complication, go to the emergency room, but don't tell them you took the abortion pill. We know for a fact they're protecting traffickers and they're keeping their mouth shut when they know that, that a woman might have been raped or trafficked. We know that. We, we have the stories. You see, but... But they can't stop themselves from saying that abortion is the answer. The abortion is going to allow for women to climb the career ladder. Abortion is going to allow for these people to do what they want to do in their life, that women can't possibly have their baby in their dreams. They're going to have to pick one or the other, and of course they don't want their baby. That's what Colorado legislators are saying. Now, my question would be, how many, how many legislators in Colorado have kids? How many legislator women 
in Colorado have kids? How many folks that, that are in the higher echelons of politics in Colorado have children? But somehow they've been able to finish college and get the things that they wanted and achieve their goals while also being a mom or a dad. But yet they, they tell these folks in the community, they, well, you can't do it. We were able to do it, but you can't do it. We are, we are telling a lie to a generation. We are pitting them against their own flesh and blood. We are pitting them against their own child. And that's what our culture is doing today. We're not just pitting them against their own child. We are going out of our way to pit ourselves against ourselves when it comes to gender, when it comes to sex, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to all of these things. And then we wonder why we have the problems we have in our society. But if you tell a generation that their babies have no value and you also tell that generation that you can be a boy or a girl and you also tell that generation that marriage doesn't matter and you also tell that generation that you can marry anybody and everything that you want to, don't be surprised when we have some problems in our culture. Shame on Colorado. Shame on those elected officials for doing this. This is bad legislation. It's extreme legislation, and it should be called as such. We'll be back. Walk through the Red Sea that the hand of God did divide. And David obeyed the So as we finish up today, look, I could go on and on about what Colorado's doing, what some other states are doing. The reality is this is, the, this is what post Row is going to look like. In the same way that you're going to have states like Tennessee that go out of their way to protect life, you're going to have states like Colorado that go out of their way to uh, protect abortion and to end life. Again, we are, we are not on a slippery slope anymore. I saw a video over the weekend uh, talking about euthanasia. And that since Canada legalized euthanasia, and actually, Canada and California both legalized euthanasia in the same year. Since that time, California has seen 500. I think the last reporting was in 2021. California saw 500 people via doctor-assisted suicide euthanasia. 500, which is insane. But in the same amount of time, Canada in 2021 euthanized 10,000 people. And we've seen that with some things that they're doing in Canada, they're only increasing that number and now going after minors. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring that up to show that we are in a place where life has no value. Now, if you go watch cable news, they will tell you to your face that, well, certain lives have value. We, we certainly celebrate some lives over others. We certainly don't celebrate Christian people, we don't want to celebrate them. We don't want to tolerate them. They're terrible people. But there's certain folks in our community that we're going to celebrate. We certainly don't celebrate the unborn. That's the last thing we want to do because we don't even believe they're human. That is what you'll find on cable news. But here's the reality. Our society will say things like that, but the reality is they don't value life. Canada will tell you Every life has value, and if we can protect one life, then we've done our job. At the same time, 
They are literally putting down humans. In the womb, out of the womb, old, young, middle-aged, sick, not sick, psychological issues, mental health issues, it doesn't matter. They're going out of their way to put them down. And that may sound callous, but that's, that's what they're doing. So when we see things like out of Colorado, it doesn't surprise me. It angers me. It frustrates me. And as I'm having conversations with friends that are doing work there, it, it certainly is a concern of theirs as they continue to serve the community that they've been called to serve. But, but we have to understand, we know how this ends. And so, yes, we get angry and we get frustrated and we fight and we advocate and we, we lobby and we do all these things. We call out nonsense when it's in front of us, but we have to understand that, that we are not on a slippery slope here. That outside of revival... In heart change, we're not going to see much shift. And so as we have this conversation in Holy Week, for Christians, this is the week. We just celebrated Palm Sunday. Jesus enters and they're laying down the branches. They're celebrating him coming into the city. And in just a few short days, one of his own disciples turns him over and They crucify him. But before the crucifixion occurs, he washes the feet feet of his disciples, and he's showing them that even in my time that's about to come, and he knew what was coming, I'm going to be a servant in this moment. So as gospel people, again, we advocate, we lobby, we make phone calls, we send emails, we talk about it on shows like this, we... We, we serve, we do all of these things, but we never forget that our ultimate focus is on Jesus and we are going to serve even in the difficult times. So to my friends in Colorado that are serving in hostile environment, I would simply encourage you to serve all the more and give all the more credit and, and glory to God. That although our legislators are seeking to attack the work that you're doing, what you are doing is making a difference. Because our, our patients are not Googling, I think I'm pregnant and I need Jesus. They're Googling, I think I'm pregnant, I'm scared out of my mind. Who's going to be there to help me? And you are there to help them. It, ain't, it isn't going to be a legislator. It isn't going to be the governor. It isn't going to be a piece of legislation. No, it's going to be you. And it is an honor to co-labor with you. It is an honor to serve in this work with you. It is an honor to fight for life with you. You're in our prayers. We trust God's going to do some amazing things as you continue to serve and continue to point people to the truth of the gospel. What a blessing it is. We'll talk to you all next time.